Welcome back to another episode of the Purple Worm RPG podcast, where four British blokes talk about RPGs and maybe give a little bit of advice on things you might find useful for your game. So in this episode, Pete Jones is going to be talking to us about fairy trees. So, yeah, today I'm going to talk about fairy trees. Colin, you're the gardener. Any idea what sort of a tree a fairy tree is? Well, my guess would be witch elm. Hawthorn or ash, apparently. Now, fairy trees, they usually come up in Irish folklore. And basically, they these um, fairy trees stand alone in fields and commonly surrounded with large stones around the base of them. The, the myth is that these stones protect the tree. The mystery is nobody knows who puts the stones around the tree and how they came to be there. And a lot of these um, sort of stories revolve around these trees are that they are gateways between worlds for mortals and that of fairies in the other worlds so that the mortals can travel to the fairy world and vice versa. And the belief is with farmers quite often is that if you damage or cut down one of these trees, you'll be faced with a life of bad luck. And they usually come into um, sort of the news when farmers have to work around the trees and there's like a new project with a new road or a new building and there's a, there's a tree there and the, the workmen point blank refuse to knock down these trees because they're fearful of the bad luck and they don't want to uh, chop the tree down or move it at all. And one of the stories from Northern Ireland goes that, I don't know if you remember the old Back to the Future film with the DeLorean car. DeLorean was based in Northern Ireland which and it's a failed business. Well, the rumour or the myth is that DeLorean failed because they chopped down a tree to build their factory on these fairy trees. And that is why DeLorean failed, not because the cars were shit, obviously. So well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, Pete, but it was, a, it was a hawthorn tree that I saw on a programme about Ireland yesterday, in fact, and they diverted their motorway because one of the local storyteller type guys said, what you got there is a fairy tree, sacred tree. Yep. And um, yeah, they ended up diverting the motorway. It was only a little kink in the motorway, but they did, yeah. The Adventuring Party um, podcast, when they were talk- doing their episode on how islands represented in RPGs, one of the things they talked about is there's numerous sort of uh, natural features and old mounds and stuff like that, which even though perhaps the, the original reason from the, for them has been sort of lost to the mists of time because they've accumulated this sort of legendary about them and the, this sort of folktale significance, even now they're still sort of left alone by modern developments and things like that. Now, fairy trees, although predominantly from Ireland, they're also found in, found in a lot of uh, Scottish um, folklore and uh, Scottish stories. But um, there are no records of um, fairy trees in Wales or England. For some reason, it's just not in the folklore, or so I thought. So um, I was reading an article the other day, and it said that um, back in the 19th century, every British parade had its tithe apportion records. And these records were measurements of every field and meadow in a given parish so that they could be assessed for tithe payments. And they recorded all the names of the fields. Apparently, it's the largest source of British field names that uh, exists. And a lot of these tithe records survive, and councils have actually put them online. And one of these um, uh, I found was 
was from Chris from Haunted Ohio Books in America. He did a lot of research saying, I can't believe there are no Welsh fairy trees. So he started doing some research in his tithe records and he found a fairy tree, which is about 12 miles from where I live in a village called Clangotlan. And that dates back to uh, 1817, where that uh, tree was discovered. So um, yes, there were some fairy trees in Wales. And that one was a bit strange because that was an oak tree. So a bit more bit more digging uh, went on. And then I found an article um, that appeared in a book of Welsh poems in 1837, um, saying that uh, there was a fairy tree near where I lived, which had grown at a Blague burial site. So I've dug the article up um from 1837 and it says in the middle of a field in the neighborhood of Repton there is an oak called the fairy tree beneath whose branches in days of yore delightful people the fairies used to hold their festivals many pleasant tale was wont to be told at merry Christmas time of those generous now alas banished people how they gave silver pennies to the industrious and harp subduing charms to virtuous maidens and it goes on to say that this um, tree is in the neighborhood in Wrexham where a fairy field as it later became known and this fairy tree is, can still be seen in the neighbourhood. So the, the the mound which this old oak tree was was called was known as the fairy oak at Wrexham, and it was purchased by a Mister W. E. Samuel, and he enclosed this in his pleasure grounds of Fairy Mount a house. And what I found out that this um, fairy mount house, it still exists today. And in, in my days in my uh, previous uh, job, I know the area well. And this old building is still there. It's got like big old iron wrought gates. And if you peek at the Ordnance Survey maps from 1909, you can actually see that this mount is shown in the old Ordnance Survey maps. But on the current Ordnance Survey maps, Google Maps and all those, this this mound and this oak don't exist anymore. So it's sort of, at some point, the OS records got rid of it. So if you go back to this um, this tree now, this tree is built on a mound. And apparently back in the 1920s, was it? Oh, let me find the date now. I've lost, I've lost, I've lost my place, as they say. They, they, 130 years ago, they did an excavation, sorry, in the 1880s. And they did an excavation of this um, burial mound that was beneath a tree. And they found some old bones and some pots. If you go there now today, this this mound could still be there, and I shared a, a picture with the uh, of the worms of this burial mound. Apparently now the the bones have gone missing from this, have been misplaced from this burial mound. So I don't know where they've gone. Um, but the burial mounds, there are a lot of them in Wales. If you go to the Bronze Age, Anglesey, places like that, there's lots of burial mounds. It was sort of a, a way of the traditional Celtic people to uh, bury their leaders and and that sort of thing. And this area where I live now, it was the tribe of the Ordifices, who were one of the few tribes to, to battle against the, the Romans and, and resist the Romans. Well, a lot of the Celtic uh, tribes of, sort of ceded to the Roman authority. Um, these were one of the tribes that was sort of fought them and was sort of obliterated by the Romans. So that is mine, the, the the fairy tree and the mounds that, that could be found beneath them. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty interesting. I mean, obviously in your standard sort of RPG campaign, most of them have history where there's like lost empires or sort of previous civilizations that came before. And that's often used as a, a justification of having like your dungeons, your bury, burial mounds and stuff like that. 
But I think it's interesting how with the sort of real life versions, quite often, obviously, these places had a function at some point. I know, as I say, the, the adventuring party, they were talking about how a lot of these old burial mounds in Ireland, they're originally for sort of like tribal chiefs and stuff like that. But over the years, as like the tribes sort of dispersed and things like that, they were forgotten about and they were sort of recast as these like fairy mounds and sort of legends accumulated about them. So I think it's like an interesting thing that people could bring into their RPGs to add like a nice bit of depth to it because quite often you'll you'll find these these old civilizations and it'll be like oh well there's a there's an old buried temple because the empire of such and such a hundred years ago used to have a temple in this area and it's sunk below the ground or whatever and often it's quite sort of definitive in um, a sort of standard rpg campaign it's like yes this was a this was the the ancient serpent man empire or whatever and they had a temple here and that's what it is whereas i think it'd be far more interesting if you if like when the players are like talking to the locals again another opportunity for people to like research and find out information if you had like a few different contradictory legends although maybe a little bit more sketchy in the details because in the sort of real world and obviously rpgs aren't sort of realistic to a great degree but obviously in the real world sort of living memory only goes back so far and when you get these big gaps in knowledge people tend to sort of fill in the gaps with like tall tales and myths and half remembered folklore so i think that'd be a really interesting thing to sort of port into an rpg so maybe when you talk to the locals instead of someone going yes the ancient serpent man empire used to have a temple here they go oh there, there, there was a there was an ancient tribe of like a e- evil e- evil fairies that used to inhabit this place and they had they had a strange uh, place where they used to like dance in the moonlight amidst the forest and no one's been able to find exactly where it is and someone else is like oh no that's a load of rubbish it was a uh, it was the old sort of armies of the old empire who built like a fortification there and it fell into ruins and was overgrown and just to like give a few sort of like almost like contradictory sort of things and then let the players make their mind up when they discover it and when they explore what they think the truth actually is yeah, because I mean, that's your classic rumor table, isn't it? You normally get rumors conflicting on a rumor table. I, I think you definitely want to have some of them true rumors and false rumors, and and they can they can conflict with each other, like you're saying. Well, you know it is, man. I mean, I, I love a rumor table. I mean, if I didn't like a rumor table, I'll have to like turn in my OSR membership card. So, well, I <laughs> I see. I'd go further than that. I'd I'd have a random table, which was you know I wouldn't have decided. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah, the origins yeah. were. I mean, yeah. that's that's the kind of thing I like in a setting book. I don't want a setting book where I've got to dig through two or three pages to find out who built the castle and you know what's what's down on the deepest yeah. level. Yeah, I've just got a D6. Here's D6 possible, um, you know, possible people who built this castle. D6 possible civilizations that were here first. I love that stuff. And you've got several different campaigns you can play through there where it all plays out differently. Well, with, with burial mounds, I mean, there's, there's such an opportunity to put loads of different types of civilizations in there, creatures in there. I mean, if you if think to the, the, the Baramays, I mean, all those mounds there, you've got mummies in some, you've got um, spectres, whites, you know, it sort of opens up the opportunity isn't it with the with the mound to put loads of stuff in what one interesting fact that i did come across though while i was researching this back in 2002 the royal mail uh, had a, released a new set of peter pan collection of stamps and where did they do that British release? They did it at this house in Wrexham, where this fairy tree was. They got all the local schools down, all the schools dressed up as fairies, and they held the promotion for the release of the stamps at this little known mound with a fairy tree in it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, I was going to say, to come back to what Dave was saying, I mean, w- when it comes to, to sort of settings, I think I like a nice middle ground. I mean, 
I, I know we've talked about a book recently where I, I thought, you know, if, if I'm going to pay a certain amount for a book, I expect there to be a certain amount of information in there because if I'm going to have to make up everything myself, I'm like, well, I, I don't need to buy a book to do that. I can do that anyway. But I do agree. I don't like a campaign setting where like everything's detailed out to the nth degree. I like them to have like a basic framework and then they're like, here's the framework that you can hang your ideas on and that you can elaborate on and there's room for maneuver within it. Yeah. Bullet points will serve me, you know, yeah. a few bullet points of, of some key suggestions. But I say, same with you, John, if, if I've got 20 or 30 pages that I've got to read through, it's like, oh, you know. I don't get the impression that Dave is really in the market for a setting book particularly. I think he, he's I, talking I, I, about I, something I, different. I'd like a book that's packed full. But uh, yeah, I don't want great rooms of text. I want tables, tables, tables. So you know, don't give me, don't give me a, a long, a long form legend. Give me six different possible short form legends because you're not going to open the book and read the story anyway. I mean, the too much of RPG settings to me is I wish I was a novelist. You know, so I'm going to show yeah, you what yeah. medieval flowery language I can achieve. I don't want it. Just give me the grids. I, I only I, need I, the one line. That's the bit I'm looking for. Just I need, I, I need to remember the name of the wizard because I'm going to use it later. And, and, and apart from the GM. How much? How much are the players going to learn about this setting? Unless they're playing it for months or years, a lot. Yeah. Also, you can't you can't memorize it all, so you yeah, end up getting there's, it wrong. There's only so much you can absorb. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a friction there, though, isn't there, between the, the where you've got the author that's potentially being paid per word, mm. then then you've got the guy who's buying the book who's got it in his mind that he wants mo pages is mo better. And, and then if you presented somebody with like a really slim volume that was full of tables, they might be they might be like, man, I, I paid this money. I've only two, got 10, 10, 12 pages. Two, two sides of duck rows is <sighs> endlessly easier than one half page of good random yeah, tables. Yeah, exactly. How hard, you know, yeah. simple, simple, and cl- clean and simple and minimal is never easy to do. I mean, I That's... think I think if you if you are going to be writing something that you don't have to keep that whole idea of like a certain degree of brevity in mind. And I mean, let's think about it. If you're if you're writing your notes for uh, a session, like you're you're preparing something yourself, that's how you tend to write stuff. You you put bullet points down. You put like little yeah. reminders. You don't write some massive like twelve thousand word like treaties on like every, every little aspect of the session. You you put down the stuff you're going to need to run the game yeah. and that's what i like rpg books to give me so they trust me to come up with some other stuff but they give me the main points that that book's trying to get across to me like an easily digestible form yeah because from a, from a player's point of view all you, all you want to know is you know is is, is there a law to this land uh, who's in charge is anybody in charge who do we like who do we not like you're not you're not interested in all, all this other stuff that's not going to impact on the day-to-day lives are you well but i mean but you can i mean sometimes you do fixate don't you on a particular particular detail of a pc or a particular mm. but but you're right there's no there's no rhyme or reason to what it would be <laughs> so yeah. so there's no point trying to comprehensively list all of that i like um you know gavin will do it uh, gavin norman will do it it'll yeah. just give you a, it'll give you a row of adjectives it'll just give you the key descriptors the key tags row of adjectives yeah. to describe the room or whatever that's all i need yeah um, i think when it comes to setting books it's not necessarily about it isn't actually about information that's ever intended to be passed on to the players 
in fairness to the people that are writing those, I think a certain amount of that is just to create uh, immersion for the for the GM and maybe give them some jumping off points. So you you can mine that stuff, but you are mining it. If 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 it was just put out there for you, just hooks and tables and things like that, you could blow through it quicker. I was going to say to, to give an example. I'm in a, a Facebook group called Sages of the Forgotten Realms, where people sort of drill down into like the vast body of law that's been accumulated for the Forgotten Realms. And I find that really interesting to read, as something to read. However, and I've got like, I've got like the, the third edition version of like a lot of the Forgotten Realms books. I've got some of the old second edition stuff. I think I've got some of the fourth edition stuff. And obviously there's a smattering of it distributed throughout fifth edition. But if I was going to run a game, just because of the sheer amount of law, I'd either, if I wanted to run it in Forgotten Realms, I'd have to like drill down to one particular area that I thought that's manageable, or I'd just look for another campaign world that didn't have all this sort of baggage that goes with it. So it's interesting to read from a point of view of like a coffee table book, you know, like reading, but it doesn't help me with the game. But you have to, yeah, you have to really work to use it. I'm in the same place. I'm all over the Dark Sun forums, the Dark Sun groups at the moment. I'm pouring through the modules. I'm loving it. I'm absorbing it all. But yeah, but if I want to run a session, I've got, I've actually got to find a way through that. So I've still got to make my grids, my tables, my notes so none of it none of it is playable but i think there's another thing i think people are also reproducing a genre aren't they they've that's that's what you read that's the stuff that you read when you were aspiring to be an rpg writer you were thinking oh i could do this because you're reading the pages and pages of pseudo fiction you think yeah i can do this whereas actually i think it's moved on i mean that some of the some some of the some of the presentation of of information now in rpg books is is super smart and yeah and i I wouldn't go back to that stuff yeah i mean if i if i can just like cover the ears of like my OSR membership card for a few moments. I think one of the, the sort of quite clever things they've done with like fifth edition is a lot of this sort of setting information is dispersed throughout the adventures. So there's not like a here's the huge tome of Forgotten Realms like they used to be. And when I sort of initially saw how they were doing it, I wasn't particularly keen. But the more I've sort of read their stuff, I'm like that's actually quite clever because like you've got the um, you've got the Chult adventure which tells you like a little bit about Chult, but it's only that one sort of little section. So it's quite easy to manage because it's only focusing on a little area and telling you what you need to run that particular adventure and here's a few little bits if you want to expand it rather than when they did sort of um, second edition and third edition you tended to get like the big book of campaign knowledge and then every month they'd be like oh here's another book with more docs and stuff in it here's another book with more forgotten realm stuff in it and so and so on and so forth like into infinity yeah and, and they've taken flack for that as well a lot of people yeah. have said oh where's the forgotten realms campaign book but i'm with you john i I've been well happy with Tomb of Annihilation because it's given me good little setting, a fairly decent sort of sandbox. There's quite a lot of tables in there. There's little rules to change up your game. It comes with like player options. It comes with monsters. And it's like if you've just been playing a sort of a standard RPG or whatever, and you just want a little in- injection of a different place with some different stuff going on and some different ideas, it, it really does that. It's been perfect for me exploring the jungle, doing these different things. And there's loads in there. I think it'll keep me going for ages. And I think it's been really well, good value for money. Yeah, and they've changed and they've changed the glue on the binding and the pages <laughs> are not falling out. Yeah, but I was gonna say the, a the bonus. The th- thing I like about those is the, the sort of like the way they're doing it now is that they give you an adventure, so you've got everything you need to run that adventure. And then there's like a, a sort of smattering of stuff that expands that that particular 
particular bit of the setting. So if you want to go, oh, I don't want to run the adventure, or I want to run something else afterwards in this setting, there's enough there that you can do that, but there's not so much there that you're like, oh, I've got to like read like six hardback books and like somehow remember all of this before I feel like I'm going to appropriately be able to represent this campaign set. Because you can just go, right, th- this adventure deals with like Neverwinter or this adventure deals with Chult. So if I'm setting a game there, all I've got to do is focus on that. I've got a few little bits and pieces to help me out but there's still enough scope that I can sort of do my own thing in that bit of the setting. Yeah, I, I tell you who does it really well is Pinnacle Entertainment with their um, Solomon Kane book because it's set in sort of like medievals of time. That's Savage Worlds, and, isn't it? Yeah, Savage Worlds. And so as, as you travel to your different continents, then each continent has its own section then you, and it's broken down to an area. And then you get sort of the, the myths of the area. And then it gives you loads of little, little, what they call savage tales, which are like mini adventures within that area. So you learn about whether it be Africa or Holland, then it's, it's broken down into, into bite-sized chunks. So you, you can sort of learn about the, the world slowly. And that's similar to the way it seems that 5th edition have, have gone. Talking <laughs> of back to trees, now, you know, I'm, I'm not a one for personal anecdotes on the purple worm, but, but. <laughs> I just happened to cut down some elder today. And when you asked about what tree would be kind of mystical and all that and fey, I should have said elder. And there is like, you know, there is the tale that you shouldn't cut elder without permission from the tree to cut it. And I'll tell you, no word of a lie, it's like Dave with his feet hanging out from the bed if you listen to a previous episode or or Goblin's henchman not whistling at night, stuff like that. None of us really believe any of this. But I still, I paused before I cut that tree and I, sp- I spoke to that tree, boy. Well, I'll tell you what, man. I'm not afraid to admit, man. I was talking to that tree. I said, look, man, just got to cut you down. Nothing, Nothing personal. personal. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, man. I've got one in my front garden and I do a bit of pruning on it. You best believe I didn't go anywhere near the trunk of that tree. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, if, if we're talking about sort of like the elder in like mythology, there's all sorts of beliefs about it. I mean, it's believed to like protect from evil spirits. You know, like if you grew it outside your door, evil spirits wouldn't be able to enter your home. That some of them they'll believe to have an almost like dryad-like sort of spirit called the elder mother that lived in the tree. So as Colin was saying, you know, you had to ask permission from the elder mother if you were going to do anything or interfere with the tree. It, it was also believed to have like a lot of medicinal properties, so it was sort of quite valuable in that respect as well and all that sort of folklore and the sort of folk medicine all sort of got jumbled together to create this almost sort of mythical reputation for the tree which as we've seen with colin still has sort of and myself still has echoes now where they say we don't believe in a lot of these like folk superstitions now but even so they're almost sort of like embedded in our historical dna that uh so that there's like echoes of these uh the these sort of folk tales still sort of resonate into modern times yeah, I mean, look at Tolkien. I mean, he he made an entire race out of trees, didn't he? The Ents. You know, writers have used trees a lot, haven't they, in, the, in their writings? Or whether or was it um, Game of Thrones? They had the the tree, the the Oracle Tree. Uh, yeah. were... So I think there are a few things. So for contemporary horror, I think there are a few things better than a than a malevolent tree, a spooky tree. I think that's great because it's it's ancient. It's out there. It's usually out there, away from the urban setting isn't it? You've got that history. It's probably been some yeah. pagan sacrifice in amongst the roots. You know, it's drunk a bit of blood. Um, I think that's got good. I mean, I can't get enough of modules with with uh, 
benevolent trees. I can use those all day long. Well, I mean, if yeah, you, I if... mean, there's a there's a tree not far from me on on Whipsnade Heath, and it can be a little bit tricky to find. But I tell you, I reckon I could take all three of you down there, and in in a in the right light or whatever, you'd be like, yeah, man, there's something going on with that tree. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> it can be spooky at night if you're inside and the sort of you know, the shadow of a tree is cast on the window. It can be quite spooky, can't yeah, it? Yeah, man. It's... My my Numenera session last night was was basically built around a spooky tree. That was mm, my one core in that's, weird. Yeah, there's a, there's a nasty one in Sleepy Hollow, isn't there? I think it's Sleepy yeah. Hollow. Well, Evil Dead. Oh, Evil Dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing about trees is essentially they're they're a living record because if you look at a particularly old tree you know it's existed for hundreds of years so it's not really surprising that they tend to have like a body of law built up around them because they'll have been in that spot for hundreds of years we've got uh, we've got evil jeff in the the twitch chat again he said if you go anywhere in the u.s where there's swampy areas you'll be able to find tales about spooky or haunted trees mm. and yeah i mean if you think like these mounds that have been there hundreds of years they've got legends built up about how if you've got like a, a really old sort of gnarly tree how many hundreds of years has that been in the place it's been so it's not surprising that superstitions have built up about it over the years right and they can grow around things their roots can wrap around things that have been left in there they can grow through corpses they will have absorbed all those death and 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 you know spirituality through their roots of course, uh, up inside uh, them and here's yeah. one in arab folklore tree they say that sacred trees are haunted by the jinn yeah i mean obviously there's um there's a lot of sort of fairy law you know you see like fairy doors in trees and again they almost seem to act as like a gateway to mm. to sort of like another place or another time and I, I wonder how much of that is just because they signify to us that this great age and this sort of history they're like a living they're almost like a link a living link to the past in a way mm. and these sort of fairy doors and stuff like that they almost just like take that to a literal level where you could literally sort of step into a, a version of the past by walking through a door in one of these trees and i think that'd be like a really cool thing to do for an rpg it can be quite poignant as well if you get um trees that have been in in like war zones and stuff like that that turn up in sawmills and even long after the war's gone on like dave was saying the tree will grow around stuff sometimes you'll get barbed wire on boundary trees you get bullets in trees and even years after war you're still getting the misery when the sawyer puts the timber through his saw and he's getting his blades blunted you know it's causing grief even years after the war it's like a reminder that this whole thing was a nightmare and it's still a nightmare you could see as lewis used it you cut it down of course you make it into a wardrobe yeah and it retains the magic it still is a portal to another world yeah there's that whole idea as well i think it's called pareidolia or something like that where people have a tendency to like see faces in things like clouds and like the patterns in trunks of trees so oh, yeah. naturally as people we tend to sort of uh, put these characteristics on things so if you see like an old gnarled twisted tree with like its branches like tapping on a window it seems sinister well obviously it's just a tree it seems sinister because we we give it we sort of imbue it with those characteristics I, I, and the other one is the old hole in the tree as well i mean mm-hmm. so, you know what, what's contained in the hole you know is, 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 is the treasure in there it's just but yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, as well, I mean, as we say, the, the obvious link for trees and like RPGs is with like the Fae or some sort of nature realm. And obviously there, we've got the Druid class in D&D, which is sort of intrinsically linked into that idea of nature. So 
you could use something like that to sort of allow a because druids a lot of the time they they're just sort of they're a bit like a, a, a different version of a cleric but you know instead of the healing they make with the summoning of animals and stuff like that but you could use something like this idea of trees as like a gateway to somewhere else to sort of give a different dimension to those sort of characters and allow them to sort of bring the rest of the party along with them so it's not just like the druid doing his thing off on his own there you go it's the old the old secret door yeah the sunless the sunless citadel was a classic uh what is it free third edition um scenario and the, the, there was a pretty nasty druid and a big old tree down in the depths of the dungeon and stuff like they're, they're they're all over the place aren't they trees well yeah i mean we often <laughs> there you go, there's the we often talk when we talk about dungeons there's this concept of like the mythic underworld you know where you enter you enter like the underdark or something like that and it's like a different realm where different laws apply but quite often trees are useful as like a transition between the normal world and that sort of realm i mean um there's the necrotic gnome have done a, an adventure called hole, in the, hole oak, in the oak which is just this idea of you go into this tree and through that you enter this sort of underground realm with different laws and it's almost like a sort of a a different plane but it's a plane that's like within this tree in this sort of underground realm so the tree is just your gateway to get you into that other place it's like Enid Blyton with the faraway tree. I don't know if you yeah. guys ever read that. I've as a had kid. that going through my mind. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And, and that took you up to the cloud, cloudland, whatever it was called. Well, you, well, it moved around, didn't it? Yeah, the, you took yeah, you up could, to a different land each time you were did it. Right, ran. right, yeah. So they, I love them. Around every and again. Well, that, that's yeah. an interesting point, though. Because I mean, if you if you look at like a really massive tree then it effectively exists in like a number of different realms anyway because you've got like the top of the branches you know reaching up into the sky and reaching up into the clouds you've got the roots that delve deep into the earth and you've got the trunk which exists in the sort of normal world so as a sort of a gateway or an access point i mean if you look at things like a jack of the beanstalk you've got like the giant the the huge beanstalk that grows and by climbing up it you can get into this sort of cloud realm that's populated by all these different types of creatures and like i say hole in the oak it's like the roots delving into the earth and taking you into a different place so i think they're ideally placed as a way to move between realms that's possibly a little less fantastic than like shazam here as a magical portal portal yeah but it it feels more sort of I suppose sort of mythic or more sort of like well it's a bit whimsical using a tree yeah, isn't it? there's a sort of bit more fairy a bit more of a sort of fairy tale vibe to it yeah, yeah. fairy tale yeah, yeah which I think if you're running the sort of the right sort of campaign with that sort of tone it's a nice alternative just to the the by now sort of quite sort of trite idea of like oh we go through a magic portal yeah but also but also these oh, these I'm, I'm sure you don't need to go too far before these fairy tales get super dark do they I mean they didn't want to disturb any of those trees that might be yeah. out of respect for the fail it might be you're scared of the horrible things they're going to do to you i mean that's the that's the element i like these these druids are doing foul things with these trees you know there's there's people being there's people being sacrificed well there's the old the... stories about hanging trees isn't there you know where the mm. like, people have been hung from a particular tree and the trees somehow absorbed some of that like dark mm. murderous essence and mm. it's become this sort of dark place where like bad things happen around and it's shunned by people mm. yeah. or it's just resentful because it's um ecologically aware yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the ants, you know, oh, the forest is being chopped down. I'm going to get murderous and resentful, probably with good reason. Yeah. Indeed. So that's it for this episode of Purple Worm. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can leave us a voicemail using the Anchor app 
or you can send us an email to purplewormpodcast at gmail.com. Until we see you again, take care, stay safe, keep gaming, and watch out for those purple worms. Thank you.